why do jokes and justice come in with speech? Right. What is it about being a talking beast? That, okay, that means that you can laugh. And why can't dumb beasts laugh? Yeah, I mean, animals are entertained by things, but do they find it humorous? Because we'll be entertained by things that we don't necessarily think are funny. Welcome to Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. This is Glumpuddle. And this is brilliant. And I have to apologize for all the gym fan fans, but gym fans in Tokyo. Having a blast looking at her Instagram. Blast. Oh my like, goodness. Like, oh my goodness. The food alone, the Disney food looks amazing. Yep. So Disney just had its hundredth anniversary, the time of this recording. On the same day as the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe's 73rd anniversary. And gym fans at Disney World. Coincidence? Yes. I think not. The show must go on. Uh, We're on to The Magician's Nephew, Chapter 10, The First Joke, and Other Matters. And the most interesting things that stood out to me in this chapter are basically, number one, what does it mean to be a talking beast? Something that Lewis has kind of hinted at a fair amount in the previous books, but I think we get a lot more insight into it here. And the other thing is Uncle Andrew can't hear the animals talking. It's most especially Aslan. They just sound like roars and animal noises to mm-hmm. him. And why is that? Those are the two most inter- interesting things that really jump out at jump out to me in this chapter. I can't wait to get into them. Now, I, for me, like it is interesting. Uh, one of the things I keep thinking about is how th- the book is. It sounds like a criticism to say it's all over the place, but it really is in terms of mood and tempo. I mean, we we're talking with the other, uh, in the other episode about them singing you know they just start oh let's uh-huh. sing an im an im you know and they start uh-huh. singing you know and then listen to the music yeah there's just little bits of humor and then the, the drama and like the the tone of this chapter and then the chapter following 11 is very very different and i kept thinking i, I guess i'm a visual person and i keep thinking about film and stuff and i'm trying to not just constantly think about a future film of magician's nephew while i'm reading it i'm thinking oh man this will be it's be hard to pull off, but it works for the book. I I mean, it never feels like I'm never reading a kind of a humorous part with Uncle Andrew and thinking, man, this is just this is way too lighthearted. I'm never I'm never thinking that, nor am I ever thinking, oh, man, this is a little bit heavy. The plot definitely doesn't follow the normal trajectory you would think of. Usually this would be about, you know, this is about the end of act two here. This is usually where you want to have peak tension. This is usually where you want the stakes to feel really high. And you want to really... Movie it out of the characters at each other's throats to add a little more tension. Exactly. Uh, A la Prince Caspian 2008. Yeah, that's definitely not happening here. And I think that is something... I'm glad it worked for you. For me, that's something that I've had to kind of come around to on Magician's Nephew. I think the first time I was really into that storyline with how are they going to get Jadis back to her world... And everything that was going on. And I think the first time I was, although I thought it was all super interesting, seeing the creation of Narnia and the uh, the origin of the White Witch starting to come together and the lampposts popping up and seeing how the Talking Beast came about and stuff. I thought that was interesting, but I was also simultaneously just a little disappointed that we didn't get to keep that tension on a little bit longer. Similar, and I'll probably have something similar to say when we get to the last battle, when you get to the last battle gets interrupted by, you know, the end of the world. So when we get to the commentary on right. that, when we get to the com- I'll probably have some, there's a similar 
uh, thing happening there as well. Well, and there's also kind of, it, it gets into this a little more in the next chapter. Um, but, you know, Aslan starts saying, well, even though the world's not five hours old, and then a little bit later, it's not even seven hours old. Like, oh, wow, I guess time is passing, you know? <laughs> so, but at, at the same time, I, I get it because you can't, at some point, you can't just leave Uncle Andrew and then just not, and just wonder, wait a minute, he just, dis- he can't just disappear out of the story. Yeah. No, like I said, even though, there's a little bit of the the momentum is the momentum of the story of what's going to happen with the witch and can they get her back kind of stops for a while here. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here, obviously, and that's maybe that's how Lewis gets away with it because it's all good stuff. Um, and the chapter begins with the children had long felt sure that he could speak, yet it was a lovely and terrible shock when he did. Talking about Aslan, of course, and we start witnessing the uh, creation of. Talking beasts. Uh, we see him create, I guess, regular dumb beasts first. Then he appo- appoints, if you will, some of them to be talking beasts. And the first thing all the creatures say, in unison, I guess, they all say, af- af- the first thing, once they're given the ability to speak, the first thing they say is, we are awake. We love. We think. We speak. We know. And so those are the things that kind of define a talking beast apart from a dumb beast. It's not just the... They're not just animals that have the ability to talk. I mean, a parrot can do that, kind of. Um, there is something way deeper going on than that. And they love, they think, they speak, and they know. That's the first thing we kind of find out about what separates a talking beast from a dumb beast. And then, then Aslan says to them, creatures, I give you yourselves, is the first thing he says. And I had turned that over in my mind a lot. I mean, a lot of people will say that the concept of the self is is something that is unique to humans. You know, because animals are aware, but they're not self-aware. Um, maybe there's a much more deeper meaning than that. But for an animal to understand, I am a self and I, you know, relate to other people and other and the people in this case being the other animals. Mm-hmm. A dog, you know, is one of the most affectionate animals. But a dog doesn't, a dog is kind of reacting and just kind of acting out in the world. A dog doesn't really understand itself. It doesn't understand that it is a thing that just, that it really does exist. And so at a certain extent, it doesn't have the same kind of mastery over itself with free will that a human does. I think that's the key there, um, that uh, a dumb beast, whether in Narnia or in our world, at least in the way Lewis is just talking about it, a dumb beast is basically an instinct machine. Yeah. Whereas a talking beast has more control over, do I obey those animal instincts or not? A talking beast on some level can step outside of itself and make decisions. It's not just an instinct machine. Well, it's like, it's like there's a famous uh, experiment that was done with some monkeys where some people were saying, Oh, see, these monkeys have a concept of morality. And people are like, what? Go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This monkey was getting grapes. And he uh, then another monkey saw that that monkey was getting grapes and he wasn't getting them. So then he was mad because he, he thought it was unfair. So he wanted grapes. And they're like, no, 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 no. Here's where. No, that doesn't prove the monkey has a concept of morality. Here's where. You know, approve monkey has a concept of morality. He's eating grapes, and the other monkey gets some pretzels, and he goes, 
well, that's unfair. This guy should get my grapes too, you know, right. they got, which is never going to happen. Yeah. So I think, and when we're talking about that, um, like what makes a talking beast different from a dumb beast, we're also kind of having the conversation, what makes us different from uh, a dumb beast as well? Because I think it's a, it's a similar thing. Well, you started off sounding like a Calvinist with Aslan electing which ones were a dumb beast and which ones weren't. But... <laughs> oh, I've, I've changed course, have I? There you go. There you go. Well, let, let me, Um, here's here's the thing. What really makes humans different from animals? And again, th- that's the conversation we're having now when we talk about what's the difference between talking beasts and dumb beasts, I think. This idea of being able to step outside your programming, your natural instincts, and make decisions that you can be held accountable for. I believe that's the case. I believe there's free will and choice, but I cannot rationally explain it because it doesn't really actually make sense to me. The best short explanation I ever heard. Does free will exist? Of course it does. If it didn't, we wouldn't take so long to make decisions. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Uh, My computer, unfortunately, occasionally takes a long time to make decisions, but I don't think that means that my computer has free will. But we do live, I I will say this, we live in a very, if you just look at the news and how people judge other people and how they evaluate even things like crime and stuff. Everything is evaluated in our kind of Western, very deterministic lens in this way that everything has a cause outside you. Everything has some kind of cause. It's, it's, it, we may not know what it is, but it's your DNA. It's your, it's the environment. It's the people who influenced you. It's the, how you woke up that day. And it's like, well, but at some point we're not just machines, but I asked a guy one time when I was taking this philosophy class, I said, so in theory, so I, if I understand you, cause he was kind of advocating for this. So if you had an accurate blueprint of a human, like detailed enough to like, like a flow chart on every single factor, you're saying you could predict with hundred percent certainty, whatever human will do. If you had all the information, he said, yes. I think that that's that sounds completely logical and valid. I completely understand that. Because um, when you come right down to it, could you prove that, like, let's compare a human to a mousetrap and ask the question, okay, the mousetrap went off. What caused it to go off? And you could describe that in just, like, a few, okay, the, the arm got triggered and there was tension and it released and it sprung. You could describe that in a few steps. And there's an argument that went, you know, why did I decide to go to work this morning? You could write a list. In theory, it would be... It would just be much, much longer than what it would be for a mousetrap. So is a is there actual choice and free will going on there, or am I just a very, very complicated mousetrap? I believe that humans are more than just a complicated mousetrap. I don't think I can logically prove it, though. But I believe it because I know that, really, when you look into these eyes at me, I know you're just looking at a computer screen, but when you look into these eyes... There's something really behind them looking back at you. And I know that because I'm here right now and I know that there's something in here right now. Um, now, I, I I can't prove there's something behind your eyes look at, really looking back at me, but that, that's something I just sort of take on faith. There's no reason, I think, to believe that a computer is anything more than just a very, very complicated mousetrap in terms of how does it make, quote unquote, decisions. There's no reason to believe there's something actually behind there really looking back at me. But I know if, if there's one thing in the universe that I can know for certain, it's that I'm here behind these eyeballs, really looking back at you. And so that to me says there must be some kind of choice or the ability to on some level be outside of just your instincts that must exist on some level, on on, on some level. But the thing is, the soul is inherently immaterial. You you can think of all kinds of scenarios where like, imagine you could just biologically grow another glum puddle in a lab with the same memories 
you know, that the same, it thinks it's the same one. You and I know instinctively there is something different inherently between you and that one. That you're the real one. That one is a copy. Yeah, right? and and just because we know it instinctively doesn't mean it's definitely true. But that, that is something that I I believe um, that there would be something. True, but there's something, something to be it. said. There is something to be said for. Uh, there is something to be said for instinct. Yeah, for something that seems to be just self evidently true. That's where my brain kind of goes uh, when when we see uh, Aslan making these talking beasts. There is no no individual has a responsibility any moral responsibility or culpability if they don't have some decision that they are making and that's exactly what we have with talking beasts over dumb beasts and i would also say i i don't know how you could call that person an individual what does individual mean if they don't have some kind of if there's just an extension of the universe some some hyper detailed object in the universe what, what does it even mean to call them an individual if they don't have some kind of agency and I think that's kind of what we're getting back to with the animals. And of course, Aslan also says, and I had forgotten this part. Uh, I mean, I this is one of those things that, oh, yes, I, I remembered it once I read it. But I forgot that he gives them the warning right at the outset. Don't go back to being like the dumb animals. And I think later when we see Uncle Andrew, later in this chapter, we see Uncle Andrew. And there's the quote about, you know, the trouble with trying to make yourself stupid is that you very often succeed. And we see Uncle Andrew do that. And in my mind, he's kind of on his way to becoming sort of a dumb beast again, because he's sort of like he's literally he used to be able like he can't understand at least some of the speech he's hearing. So he's kind of and we know that from the the Narnia timeline that there were, you know, humans in Narnia at one point that went back to being dumb, that lost the ability to talk, basically. Um, so we know that anyway, in my mind, he, uh, Uncle Andrew has taken a little baby step towards becoming um, like a dumb beast. So I think the, it's interesting. Those are the two it, the two standard ideas in this chapter, I think, are, are really connected. So these is all really high level, very serious, very philosophical stuff, very kind of cosmic level stuff we're talking about. I love that Lewis brings it down to something as simple as a joke. And we have uh, the jackdaw gives us the first joke and says, well, what will always be told, what will always be said that I was the first joke. Um, and Aslan says, no, 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 you're not the first joke. You've just, you haven't told the first joke. Right. You've, you are the first joke. And then the creatures laugh and Aslan says, this is so interesting. I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I'm not entirely sure I understand it. It kind of intuitively makes sense to me, but I'm not sure if I can articulate it. And Aslan says, laugh and fear not, creatures. Now that you are no longer dumb and witless, you need not always be grave. For jokes, as well as justice, come in with speech. And that's just something that, again, I, I kind of intuitively understand it. Like, yeah, it, but I don't know. I can't articulate why do jokes and justice come in with speech? And why does the ability to be, what is it about being a talking beast? That, okay, that means that you can laugh. Right. And why can't dumb beasts laugh? And I don't know. We see monkeys laugh, don't we? We think we've seen dolphins apparently laughing. Like, I don't know if that's, I don't know. Even if there is apparent exceptions, what is it about? Yeah, I mean, animals are entertained by things, but it's not, but do they find it humorous? Because we'll be entertained by things that we don't necessarily think are funny. Okay. Well, regardless, what do you think Lewis is getting out of here when he says that jokes as well as justice come in with speech? I don't know, but I think that, for some reason, it reminds me of something I realized about myself. I was, there was a, 
part in the return of the king i was rereading i think it was the fall after our son died we we got so many we got a lot of books after our, our oldest son passed away and, and a lot of them were about grief and a lot of good books and things i couldn't motivate myself to read any of them the first book i was able to motivate myself to read like a serious book all the way through was the lord of the rings i think i read it the fall after he died and there's a section there where Gandalf has come back and Pippin and Mary are talking and Pippin says, well, he's not really any different, is he? And Mary says, oh, yes, he is. He, he says he's more quick to get angry and he's more quick to laugh. Huh. And it struck me because I, my, I've noticed the exact same thing about myself. I am, for whatever reason, and I'm not saying it's all necessarily always good because I can get more angry sometimes, but I maybe something seems more unfair or just wrong and I can get more angry. And I found myself also, I laugh at more jokes. Now I, I make more jokes just in the workplace. I'll, I'll I, I kind of become funnier and I become a little more upset. I'm just a little more. So, but for me, you could say, I mean, I guess I'm talking about anger, not justice but i guess maybe sometimes it comes from a sense of injustice yeah but just and that's not having anything to do with that comes with speech but that was definitely a very pivotal and intense part of our life that's a very i mean death is a it's just a part of life so it's not it was just a part of the natural course of life that we experienced firsthand and so but yes humor has been humor has been a part of the story um as well as thinking more about justice and injustice in the world, but humor definitely part of it. And so when I heard, heard that part, I kind of thought about just our own life and how it's uh, you need humor (laughs) to Uh get through life. If you don't have humor, I I like how Alistair Begg says he had like a great talk. He did like telling men and women what they should look for in a future spouse. He says they need a sense of humor. He said, I'm not seeing a good sense of humor. I'm not saying they need to be entertaining or actually funny. They can be very unfunny, but they need to have the sense of humor uh-huh. because life is just too dark and difficult to go through it without a sense of humor at all. Huh. If you don't mind, I mean, that's a fascinating perspective. So humor almost as a a defense mechanism to weather the storm of life. I mean, so are, if I understand you correctly, are, are you you're talking about you think maybe you become more humorous after un- unspeakable tragedy that you experience? So you think that those two things are are connected? Like, is that yes, as a defense? They're mechanism? definitely connected. I'm quicker to make jokes. I'm quicker to laugh at other people's jokes. That's really really fascinating. And, and it was it took a while for me to kind of be comfortable in it because I, I was very very self conscious. Like the other, like today, a guy at work said, how, do you, "How many kids do you have again?" And I, I, what do I say? Two or three? You know, I, I don't know what the answer uh-huh. is. So uh-huh. it's always there, and I feel very self conscious if I'm not constantly mourning, right? But I just, at one point, I thought, you know, I just can't help myself. I just, and I thought, you know what? It, there's nothing wrong with laughter, and I thought, you know what? If I just feel like making a joke, I'm going to make a joke, and if I feel like laughing at someone else's joke. You know, as long as it's appropriate and everything, <laughs> you know, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll laugh at the joke and that's okay. I have had to work on, you know, like 
sometimes trying to remain calm and not be angry at, at, or something. But but that's something I noticed as well. I, I think that maybe my emotions are just a little more on the surface. But humor, I wouldn't call it a defense mechanism. I would just say, because I'm not trying to... To push it, I'm trying to push anything out. Yes, I'm not trying to push anything away. It's just a way to absorb it. I understand what you're trying to not say right now. I understand. I understand. I understand why you're reluctant to call it a, de- a defense mechanism. I think. I think because we say uh, like um, coping mechanism sounds like uh, a, a cheap shortcut. Uh, is it a, a is it a way to cope? A hundred percent. I'm not going to not call a spade a spade. Um, but I don't think it's some kind of unhealthy shortcut. Um, I think that it's something. Um, I remember growing up. At one point, my my pastor had cancer, and my parents were talking to his. My parents were going through something with uh, one of my siblings at the time that was it resolved itself, but it was very very intense at the time. And they were talking to my pastor's wife, and one of them like made a joke about. They both made like a joke about each other's thing, right? And someone else kind of like heard it and was just. Like, Gasped, could not believe it. And my, my pastor's wife looked at my parents and said, "They just they don't get it. They don't get it." And it's it's at some point you kind of either laugh or you cry. But yeah, there are certain just very human things, right? Making judgments of morality, even making the wrong judgments of morality, that's part of our hum- our humanity in its current state. Humor is also part of it. Um, I never understood why Abraham laughed when Isaac was born. I never, it never made sense to me until our oldest son was born. And the only emotion I had was laughter. I just, it wasn't funny. But I just started mm-hmm. laughing and I remember laughing because it was just this abundant joy coming out of me. And it was just this awesome feeling. And so I, I laughed, you know, I think what Lewis is doing here because the, the animals are the people he's setting up the, there's just these certain concepts that these animals have that are very human. For one thing, they're very innocent at this point. Mm-hmm. They're very naive. They're, they're very innocent. Yeah. One of them says, we love, we think, we speak, we know. One of them says, but yeah, we don't know very much yet, though. Yeah. And that's a very human thing. You know, I mean, we'll say bad dog and stuff, but no dog is ever like sinful. It's just, it's a dog, right? Uh-huh. It's an animal. It's either, you know, it's just doing kind of what it's programmed to do. It's either more aggressive or it's more docile or it's somewhere in between. You know, we, we hope you find that happy medium. Um, you know, it's like, even with children, you know, uh, I, I like to say children are innocent. They're not good because uh-huh. they're very violent and they uh-huh. steal a lot of stuff, uh-huh. but they're innocent. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're just, there's this innocence about them, but that's different than animals. So all these are just little dynamics. I think Lewis is pointing out that are part of the human story. Lewis had an interesting, um, not so much something he believed, but he was sort of throwing it out there as an interesting kind of, uh, thought experiment i guess is the possibility that some dogs and cats for example and pets might be able to go to heaven along with humans because they've like in a way they've like participated in our personhood right i I think i've heard that so much great stuff Uh, i just in this chat i love the fact again we're having these big big discussions now but i also love it's down to the little things too in this chapter and um i love diggory polly um, they're surprised at hearing um, Strawberry speak, and uh, I love that uh, the cavi. Oh, I want to get a word with old with old yeah, Strawberry. Yeah, yeah, oh, I know, love this great. Part. Wouldn't it be great like, if your if your pet could speak? Wouldn't it be like, well, I want to talk to him. And then, yeah. I I love the fact that it makes complete sense to me that Strawberry has this very very blurry memory 
of his life. It must be a little bit like, you know, I, I most of us probably have possibly very, very vague memories of when we were just two or three years old, but it's just like random flashes and you can't quite make sense of it. It must be something akin to that. I love that the cabbie is kind of like, hey, remember, we're buddies. Remember, we work together. The cabbie, and he's like, That's not how I saw yeah, it. Yeah, you, you were the one I was pulling. I was doing all the work. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember. Like, there's like you had me in this place with no grass anywhere. He's like, oh well, yeah, that's that's true. Like, but he's always like, yeah, but we had some good times too. He's like, that's not how I remember it. It reminds me of when you know, when you know my the son starts saying too much about home life that I didn't necessarily want and want everybody to know. Kind of airing out my dirty laundry uh, from his perspective. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love that stuff. W- one last little thing on that with the humor. Uh, having studied German and you know the, the, trying to learn a second language, my brothers speak other languages, uh, and I know some people who know a bunch of languages. And what I've been told, and from my tiny, tiny bit of experience, I think this is true, that the first, in terms of like the levels of things you can talk about, the first thing is like uh, places and things, right? Then you get better. You can talk about people. Then you get even better, more proficient. You can talk about ideas. And then finally, when you know you're really proficient is when you can joke, when you get the humor and when you can joke with them in their language. That's like the the final level, final test. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, and that's idea number one that I find so fascinating in this chapter. And the second idea... The second idea that I think is somewhat related is Uncle Andrew suddenly can't hear what the animals are saying, least of all Aslan. And um, there's a, I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory. I mean, it, se- it seems like a really weird idea. And I love these curveballs Lewis throws at us. It reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, some uh, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Trumpkin can't see Aslan for a while. He's invisible to them. And it's just a really weird idea um, that uh, you can't you can't not think about. And of course, it reminds me more closely about the dwarfs in the last battle that refused to be taken in, which we'll get to eventually one of these days. Um, but uh, it's pretty self-explanatory what's going on. But, you know, Lewis describes it in a lot of detail. But Lewis writes about Uncle Andrew he, when he first hears Uncle Andrew first hears the song. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. And we kind of talked about in the previous episode about what some of those things might have been. And it just kind of comes down to mm-hmm. he used to have the universe in a test tube. And he could master it. And it's so clear now he cannot possibly master this. And then Lewis writes, ever since the animals had first appeared, Uncle Andrew had been shrinking further and further back into the thicket. He watched them very hard, of course, but he wasn't really interested in seeing what they were doing, only in seeing whether they were going to make a rush at him. I think that's what it comes down to here. He's thinking only about himself. Um, He's too... Because with awe comes fear as well. And Diggory and the cabbie and Polly are no doubt in awe of what they're seeing. Um, but they're, but Uncle Andrew just sees the universe as something to be used, something to serve him. So all he can think about is, well, can this hurt me? And I kind of think the others are sort of beyond that. They're just so in awe of it, you know, re- regardless of whether or not it can hurt them. In the Talking Facebook group, Rebecca and Tim wrote, I love the duality of the writing and that Uncle Andrew is convinced the others are being selfish when he says, what about me? Yeah. Similar to what, similar to the way the witch convinces herself that the power grab in war and charm was all right. 
Lewis also writes, for what you see in here depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And so Uncle Andrew is interpreting some things through the lens of I am the center of the universe. And just one more time, I'll repeat the quote. The trouble of trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Amazing stuff in this. I wanted to kind of, again, it's Lewis goes into a lot of details. I think it's fairly clear what's going on here and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you think you approach this concept cinematically? You could do it very literally and just yeah. do, you kind of cut to Uncle Andrew's face and then cut back. And now we just hear the animals rah, rah, rah. I guess you could but, just sort of yeah, do that. That's probably, I was thinking that's how they'd probably do it. But would it really have the same effect? And Lewis in a book, of course, is able to describe in detail. Here's why. Uncle Andrew is no longer able to hear the animals. Here's what that tells us about who he is. Yeah. But in a movie, could you, I think you could, but you'd have to do something a little different than what you'd have to devote some time to it. Uh, developing yeah. out the concept and the character. Uh-huh. It's a pretty complicated idea. I think to try to get across in, in a film in as much depth, you could do it yes. where, Oh, look, Uncle Andrew can't hear what they're saying. He, sure. That would probably be relatively simple to convey, but could you do it with the amount of depth? and meaning that lewis injects with it here that's what that's what i'm not sure about i don't know you know i was thinking about this old poem my grandfather used to say a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still huh and how many times you know when when you're having a discussion with someone and it could be about it could be about anything right theology or history or politics or any, any kind of any kind of subject where there's some kind of disagreement and at some point you can talk to the person you can pretty quickly assess is this person acting in good faith or is this person is every single item either cannon fodder to be used against me or just something for them to ignore and repel against mm-hmm. so and i think that that's what lewis is kind of exploring here i think it could be done especially cuz in our society today there's so much discussion about like the phrase your your truth mm-hmm. you know and you know, the postmodernists are right to the extent that, you know, when they say, well, perception is reality. Well, it certainly dictates a lot about how that person responds in terms of what they perceive. They just forget that there's an outside reality that really does exist and it's really going on. But uh, so I think it could be done, but I don't know. Yeah, it would just depend on how the film was going and whether someone had the appetite to really develop it mm-hmm. and if they thought it was important or not. Maybe I should say if she thought it was important or not, but I guess we don't yeah. know what's coming out next. So, And maybe we can talk more about this in the post-show chatter, but I do wonder, is there something inherent to the medium of a book versus a film that makes it more difficult to do something that's not kind of essential to the plot? Because this idea of Uncle Andrew can't hear the animals, you don't, it's, not like you do, it's not like you absolutely need it. Like You could just take a pair of scissors and cut it out, and you'd still have a book. You'd still have a story in place. And I, I wonder if there's something about inherent to the medium of um a book that makes those kind of not rabbit trails but just kind of tangent a little easier to swallow pacing i mean it, yes because in the same way that like in the, yes we don't have time to go into that right, right. here but, but. Oh, no, i'll just say you're right the like pacing does matter in a book but in the same way that the pacing in a movie matters different than the pacing in a tv show or a miniseries uh-huh. you know the pacing matters in both but there's just certain things you can do in some that you can't do in the other because right. you've got more time, you know, and people are exp- right now. I'm listening to a book. Is, I, I swear the audiobook. I think it's like 52 hours long. Is the, the audiobook I'm listening to right now? <laughs> it's a long book, you know. Right. So a yeah. lot happens, but the pacing's good. But it, yeah. it's a long book, and so you can explore a lot. 
And we want to make sure this episode doesn't go on for 52 hours. So we got to cut it off right there. Just a few quickie things. I'm going to throw out little bonus features right here. Um, the few notes I have, I didn't get to. Uh, the pre- I think it was the previous episode where we wondered, oh, are there mythological creatures? Or is it just at this point? Or is there... And we find out there are. Right at the beginning, we've got fawns, satyrs, dwarves, the river god, the naiads. You've got all that. Yep. No minotaurs. Hmm. I think it's fascinating that Diggory is brave enough to approach Aslan and Polly doesn't dare. Interesting. We could have talked a lot about that. We didn't. Uh, I like that we have uh, the he beaver in here. Probably the... Uh, the ancestor of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> nice little, I love the beaver. nice little bit there. And uh, the we, oh, we should have talked more about this. But um, I love that Strawberry still likes sugar, and he wants sugar. He doesn't know that it's called sugar. Right, but he he's does, still a but, horse. But yeah, he's he's still a horse. He's not like a human, like basically a human in a horse's body. He's still a horse. Has been given the gift of reason and speech and all that. And I love that. But he does something that a dumb horse wouldn't do. That. The cabbie says, oh, no, sorry, I don't have any sugar on me. And the horse just go- and strawberry just goes, well, can't be helped. You know, whereas I think a dumb horse would still be like upset. I still want sugar, you know, and right. strawberry who's mastered his animal instincts and has reason can go, you know, I guess I'm not getting sugar. I'm just going to move on. And again, it, it's it's humorous and it's so fascinating, which is so Lewis. Third joke. Sorry. <laughs> All right, we'll continue chapter 11, hopefully with Jim Fan next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Beast, the Narnia podcast. Visit narniweb.com to join our community and stay up to date on the latest Narnia news. Please post a comment or question below or in the Talking Beast Facebook group. Special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our Knights of Narnia Web. Until next time, further up and further in. Further in.